I love those old hymns. I love the, uh, the theology in their words and the emotion behind them. More than anything, the stories that they inspire are pretty amazing. If you knew the stories behind all those hymns, they would blow you away. I mean, they're good songs anyway, but if you knew the stories, it's even better. <clears throat> My name's Joe Davis. This is week 20 of 22. We're almost done with Psalm 119. The marathon of preaching is almost over. I hope you guys have enjoyed the series. We have a couple of weeks left. Um, we have some important weeks left. Um, but this week, I just got to tell you, this, this sermon isn't going to be as cool or as emotional as last week. You know, you guys seem to love it. You, you guys, the, the greatest sermons I preach are when I talk about my sin. I don't know what it is about you guys. You love it when I talk about my sin. I'm not talking about any of my sin today, so I'll try to keep you awake. But for real, this, this sermon, it's cool stuff, but it's more academic than emotional today. And so I'll need you to, to bear with me and really try to focus and put your thinking caps on because it's not one of those sermons where you leave, you know, like campfire syndrome, kind of crying and stuff like that. Um, so this picture, isn't that a warm and fuzzy picture? Don't you, don't you just see it? Doesn't your heart just fill with joy? Lawyers, courtrooms, tickets, probation, <laughs> community service hours. Doesn't it just make your heart flutter to look at that picture? You know, the bottom line is, church, there are times that we like laws. I mean, when they protect us from criminals or if they vindicate us in a lawsuit. We like them when they declare someone guilty that we are convinced truly is. But for the most part, when we personally face a law or a judge, if you're honest, it gives you a queasy feeling of uncertainty. It makes you feel nervous, anxious. But even when we like man's law, like when it comes out for us, None of us would like write songs about it. Oh, how I love tax law. Oh, how... no, we don't do that, right? There is a fountain filled with regulatory law. I mean, we just we don't sing about laws. We don't make songs about laws. Because the reason is just like man's laws, many people see God's word, God's law as a simply a list of do's and don'ts. Something that constricts us, something that condemns us, something that judges us. I mean, think about it. It's hard to embrace God's word when you don't see it as the path of life, mercy, and redemption. It's hard to embrace God's word when in your heart, all you see in it is how bad you are. I mean, right? that's one of the reasons why we struggle with falling in love with God's word. First of all, we think it's too long like this series. <laughs> but then second of all, we don't like it because, well, the most famous part's what? The Ten Commandments? Forget that. I mean, you shouldn't, but I'm just saying that's what you <laughs> want to do. Yet that's exactly what the psalmist expresses in today's passage. How much he loves God's word, loves God's law, and why? 
In this 20th song, in this album called Psalm 119, David expresses his love affair with the word of God, with the law of God. And what he does is he masterfully, poetically combines the ideas of law and love and life, and he describes them in his relationship with the word of God. Let's look at the passage. Look at my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked. They do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I don't swerve from your testimonies. Look at the faithless with, I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. That sounds harsh, but we'll explain it later. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So let's look at the historical part of this passage. Some Hebrew words that I'm going to give you. The first one is that word look that we had in red. It's ra-ra. It means to consider. He's saying, God, consider or discern or make a judgment. Look into, make a judgment about. And the next word in our English Bible says affliction. It's the Hebrew word oni. It means depression, misery, and trouble. He says, please, God, consider and make a judgment about my depression, about my misery, about my trouble, about my sorrow. And then the next word he says is beautiful. He says, plead. It's shalots or kalots to pull apart an argument, to equip for a fight, to present. He's saying, be my lawyer. I love it. I mean, I love how he says, please represent me against your law and you as judge. He's saying, God, you wrote the law. You're the judge of the law. Now be my lawyer and get me off. (laughs) That's that's really what he says. This next word is reeb. It's beautiful. He uses the same word back to back. In verse 154, he says, plead my cause. Those are the exact same words. It's fantastic. This is a Hebrew word that can be used as a noun or a verb. And the first thing he does is use it for a verb. It means to defend, to contend, to debate or to plead. He's saying, be my lawyer, be my lawyer in my cause, which is be my lawyer in my controversy or my legal personal contest. There is no doubt that what the psalmist is talking about is a legal courtroom setting. There's no way around it. He's talking about a law, a lawyer, and a judge. So get that in your head as we discuss loving God's law. He sees himself spiritually in a courtroom with God as his judge, God as his lawyer, and God as the author of the law that he himself, David, has broken. Isn't that beautiful how he uses the same word twice? Plead. My cause, defend me, debate me, debate for me, plead for me against my controversy, my legal contest. And then he has a great word, please my cause, plead my cause and redeem. The word redeem is call all. To redeem through kinship law, be the next of kin, to buy back a relative's property, purchase, ransom, redeem or revenger. Here's what he's saying. Plead my cause and pay my price. He says, if I am found as guilty, 
I'm depending on you to pay the fine, to buy me back, to redeem me, to ransom me, to purchase my freedom. This was before Jesus. David is saying, plead my cause and pay my price. The psalmist asked God to plead his case and to win it by actively redeeming him from it. You know what the psalmist is saying? I'm guilty. Pay my price. David is not depending upon his talent, his position as king, his power or wisdom, or his ability to escape judgment. He is putting his total trust and cooperation with his lawyer, like we should if we are in court, to work with the law and the judge while being all three the same. I mean, talk about the deck being stacked for you. The author of the law is your judge and your lawyer. The result is no longer a fearful, adversarial relationship with truth like many of us have, especially those who have not received the gift of faith, those of us who aren't walking with Christ yet. We see the Bible as a condemning piece of literature. But David says it's no longer adversarial for me. It's one of passion, dedication, gratitude, and loyalty. This gives insight into what David wrote in Psalm 119, 97. We talked about that in a uh, sermon earlier, eight eight to ten years ago in this sermon. (laughs) Oh, how I love your law. That sounds ridiculous. Can you imagine being in a courtroom? Judge, before we get started, can I just say something? This, this shoplifting charge, I love that law. <laughs> that thing is awesome. I can't get enough. I, I can, can you just read the statute out loud for me, please? <sighs> Do it again. <laughs> Judge, can you call me every morning at 5 a.m. and read that statute? I love that law. <laughs> David says, I love your law, even though the law itself <clears throat> condemns David. He says, I love your law. It's my meditation all day. So let's look at the theological part of this. How truth becomes seductive. You know, the word seduction isn't always a dirty thing. I mean, it seems like it, and usually it's used in a negative connotation, maybe in a moral way or things like that. But in reality, seduction itself is what happens with us and God's word once we're given the gift of faith. We think of lies being seductive. But to the child of God, truth is far more seductive than the lies of the world. Did you know that? There's a transformation that takes place in your heart and life if you know Jesus. And that transformation is this. You fall less in love with the seduction of the world and more in love with the seduction of God's word. So get that in your mind, the seduction of the law. That's the miracle behind God's word the enchanting power it has over children of grace. And David describes why God would become irresistible, how his word would become irresistible in the light of his vindication according to God's promise in verse 154. And below, what I'm going to give you here are some of the qualities of God's word the psalmist finds so attractive. Thank you. The first one, you ready? Ultimate mercy. 
verse 155 and 156. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. But great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Here's what he says. Salvation is far from the wicked because they don't follow your rules. But I'm asking you, God, to give me mercy because your rules are great. You know what the psalmist is doing? He's recognizing his subservience to the rules and asking for mercy, even though he has violated them. Without mercy, you can't see why people would love God's word. I mean, honestly, if you haven't experienced mercy, you'll have very little interest in God's word. What's the point? I mean, without the taste of mercy, we wouldn't like truth because it'd be restricting, condemning, representing judgment and death. Everyone wants mercy, right? I mean, we all want mercy, but often we don't want to receive it through God's word. We want mercy on our own terms. I don't like the mercy laid out in God's word. I want the mercy based upon my terms. Now, let me tell you something. Mercy cannot be generated on your own initiative. You don't get it because you asked for it. It's three goals of God feeding it to us first. You can't taste mercy until God hand feeds it to you. But when we finally do experience that mercy and all of its benefits for the first time, you guys go back to that moment where you understood mercy for the first time, that's when you start to be seduced by the word of God. Because we want to learn more about this ridiculous, seductive mercy we have been given. You gave me mercy? Judge, I broke every law you wrote. As believers... We know where we want to go to learn about the mercy God's given us to taste, and it's God's word. Let's look at the next thing that makes it so seductive. There is an undesirable alternative out there, verse 157 and 158. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commandments. Now, this verse is a beautiful description how a lover of God's word finds life without it. Unbearable. He expresses disgust for those without faith. He's not talking about hating people who don't have faith. That's not what he is saying. He's talking about how unappealing and appalling life would be without faith. He says, I look at the way those without faith live their life and it disgusts me. They don't disgust me. The life that they experience disgusts me. I can't imagine living their life without truth. I love your law. Do you understand? He's not saying, I hate you because you're not a Christian. What he's saying is, I look at the life of what it would be like if I wasn't a child of God and I want nothing to do with it. I have been seduced by truth, not by the world. God's word enables us to see how dark life would be without him and without his law. We can't even imagine it. And frankly, we don't want to. It's the foundation of the phrase in the old hymn, I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see what life would be like without it. Here's the next thing that makes truth so seductive. It's understanding love. He says in 159, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your love, your steadfast, never changing love. The psalmist recognized that life comes from one place, from the love of God. 
We can't understand true love on this earth, whether it be between us and another person or whatever, until we've experienced God's love first. Because what God's word does is it helps us, helps us escape the world's pathetic seduction, which is blindly rooted in selfishness and packaged as love when it's not. God's word teaches us that mercy and grace are a result of one thing, God's love for us. God's word teaches us that what love really is and how it impacts our lives and how to truly love others, it comes through the work of Christ. It teaches us that the genesis of true love, genesis means beginning for those of you from Bradenton, it teaches us <laughs> the beginning of true love is one thing, sacrifice. And the effect that true love, sacrifice can have on the one receiving it. John, 1 John 4, 16 and 19. Let me read this verse for you. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this, this, by this love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. I mean, that's when you start to love the law, when you have confidence when you go before it. Because as he is also are we also in this world, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But we love, why? Because he first loved us. So that's the theological reasons why truth can be seductive. It's ultimate mercy, it's undesirable alternatives, and it's understanding love. Let's talk about the devotional part of this passage today. Oh, there's a perfect law. I've got to get one more. Sorry. This is an important one. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God's word has always been true. It's the standard by which truth and morality are measured, even when people don't want to admit it, right? I mean, just look at the Ten Commandments and how they are based. They're the foundation for many of our laws today. Man can't help but get away from the fact that Ten Commandments... Pretty good idea for law. I mean, despite efforts down through the ages of men to develop new quote-unquote standards of truth, they always come crumbling down because the morality causes, immorality causes rot within a society. In the end, societies always realize they have to gravitate back to some sort of biblical understanding of truth, even if they don't recognize it as biblical, or they suffer moral collapse that eats away at its fabric. In God's word, we find comfort, strength, instruction, sometimes rebuke, encouragement, and hope for a future after this life. Because God's perfect truth is the legal, spiritual answer to our moral dilemma as a society. We keep thinking politicians are the answer. We keep thinking social programs are the answer. Sometimes we think war is the answer. There's only one answer, truth. God's perfect truth through mercy and grace is the enduring word that liberates us and lays out the cause for our confidence before the judge. So now let's look at the devotional part of this. Let's talk about the word of life. Guys, wouldn't it be great to love God's word 
as much as we just described because of all those seductive reasons of truth? I'm going to tell you, though, here's the problem you have. Without the gift of faith, God's word will be judgmental. It is restrictive, and it is condemning. And there is no amount of good work you can do to change that. If you go before the judge and say, no, I don't need a lawyer, I didn't do it. Lawyer says, you ought to really get, judge, you really ought to have a lawyer. No, I don't need a lawyer. Yes, you do. I've seen your rap sheet. (laughs) Faith transforms God's word from being judgmental, restrictive, and condemning into comfort, inspiration, and the path to life instead of judgment. And Jesus, the living word, he wrote the law. He's the judge in our case, and he is our lawyer and advocate. Let me tell you where I came up with that. Aren't those great lines, what I just said? Can I just say where I got that from? (laughs) On Wednesday, I was talking to Josh Holden. He was at Nightlife helping out with some kids, and he he was asking some, he goes, you're in this passage in Psalm 119 this week, right? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I have a question about this. And I started talking through it, and he was asking questions that promoted these answers. And I said, Josh, I'm going to put this down and take all the credit for it. Thank you very much. Let me read it again. Jesus, the living word, wrote the law. He's our judge, and he's our lawyer and advocate. You know what else he does? He also pays the price for our law-breaking. We are covered on every base. We know the guy who wrote it. We know the guy who's judging it. We know the guy who's uh, representing us. And we know the guy representing us will pay the price, the fine, when we're found guilty. And they're all the same person. And they loved us before we loved them. They called us out of darkness into light before the foundation of the world. It's crazy. Look at this passage. Romans 8, 1 to 3. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. The law sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You know, the psalmist says in this passage three times, give me life. He knows the truth of God gives him life instead of judgment. It's a concept that Paul echoes in several places, including my favorite chapter, Ephesians 2, which I won't bore you with again because I've read it a dozen times in a year to you. But I'll read the one in Colossians. It's almost word for word the same. Is that all right? Can I do that? (laughs) Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses, in other words, your law breaking, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, your faithlessness, God made alive together with him. You who were dead, he made you alive. Give me life. Having forgiven us all our law breaking, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The judge says, I don't know what you're talking about, prosecutor. I don't see any record of sin. Are you crazy? He took the Lord's name in vain. He was immoral. He stole. He doesn't like Pastor Joe. There's a ton of sin in his life that he's got to deal with. (laughs) And the judge says... I don't know what you're talking about. 
This, the legal problems, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, <clears throat> this is a picture. I don't know if you can read the title on that page. It's called Leviticus. <laughs> don't y'all love reading Leviticus? It's got, you know, thou shalt not eat milk and meat. Um, don't eat pigs. Uh, you shall keep the Sabbath. Um, and about, uh, oh, maybe 1,100 other rules. It's not a fun book to read. I mean, it's fun if you understand grace, but before grace, Leviticus stinks. But when you combine Leviticus with the nails of the cross and the crown of thorns, that's when it becomes different. Now listen, if you still see after today God's word as your source of condemnation, then you just haven't intellectually, emotionally, spiritually grasped mercy and grace yet. Mercy and grace that is dripping from its words onto its pages and into the hearts of those who are in Christ. Through faith, God's word doesn't have to be scary and intimidating anymore because through faith it becomes not your story of guilt, but your story of mercy. Christ and the cross has removed the condemnation and made the law sweet to your ears, your eyes, your heart, and your mind. So what we're going to do, we're going to do one more song today. Ian can come up. You can kill this one, Mike. This song is called... Uh, It's taken directly from the 23rd Psalm. It's a great, 